the end of cross. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Clay. I think most of you have uh, met him and the family, and uh, and and that's uh, something I want you to take into consideration. Is we not only get Clay, we get a youth department and everything else. So, without without much further ado, and just tell you one little side note. Last week I went to Thompson to speak in a church there, and there were several other Gideons there. And one of the Gideons came over to me and he says. Well, he said, our church doesn't have a pastor, but I guess you all do now. So, <laughs> so anyway, without further ado, Clay is going to bring a message to us, and then we'll take a vote shortly thereafter. So listen attentively, listen prayerfully. we got to do God's will. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to tell them that those men from my, um, our church that we've been serving at, they came and told me that they met Brother Tim at that Gideon's meeting. And uh, uh, they had actually met him a couple weeks before that. Uh, him and his wife came to visit. And, and so they, they already knew what was going on. We've been very, it's been a very open discussion. And, and they've said nothing but encouraging things to us. And so I'm thankful for that. And uh, thankful for you guys and for all the work that the search team has done. But this morning, I wanted to get us into the Word, but I want to do so, I want to say this, it is a privilege and an honor to be here today. I know what your church has been going through, the things that, that you know, it takes time to find a pastor, and, and uh, I'm praying the Lord willing, I may be the pastor of this church one day, and, and um, I'm just blessed to be here, but anytime I get in the pulpit and I'm able to open God's Word and lead God's people in the worship of him through his word, I'm excited. It's a privilege and honor that I do not take lightly. That, all that said, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 3 today. And as you turn there, I want you to know this. This is a simple message today. I did that on purpose. I want to ground us in the gospel today. To just consider all those things that we've been singing about. That his faithfulness certainly is great. That we know whom we have believed in, we can trust our very souls to a good and faithful creator. All those things that we sang, there's this confidence that we are in Christ until he calls us home or he returns, right? All those things that we're looking forward to. And so today I want us to see that we ground everything we do in the basic gospel message of our salvation. doesn't mean that that's all that we teach. There's a lot more things in the scriptures that we want to cover at times. But we never get away from the gospel. It is our base. Our salvation is secure. And, and I want to, as you go, you're going to see that the gospel this morning is why we praise God. We're going to find that it, he is our comfort in the trials and the daily things that we go through. We're going to see that uh, even as we do that, he is also our joy as we go through those. And at the end, I want you to see that the gospel itself, God saving of us, is the motivation, the inspiration we need to do the work of the kingdom. So let us read together this morning. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 3, and read through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. All right, go back into verse 3. Let's go right into this. If you look at the very first phrase, it just says this, Blessed be God. And uh, unfortunately, in Sunday school this morning, um, Brother Daniel kind of stole some of this from me. And uh, so we, we had some of this discussion in the Sunday school class. But I just I look at this, and it says, Blessed be God. And I want to know what in the world that means. Because when I think of a blessing, I think usually of, well, I say a blessing at my meals, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm asking God to, to bless the food, to bless our health, to bless our family. I'm giving thanks to him for what he's provided. But often, even if I'm out visiting someone or praying with someone, and I'll ask them, hey, can I pray for you? And they, they tell me, if they tell me yes, well, what am I going to pray? I'm going to ask God's blessings on them. I want his favor and kindness poured out on them. Sometimes it's material blessings. Sometimes it's physical health. Sometimes it's spiritual blessings. Maybe for sometimes I'm praying with lost people when I pray for God to bless them. And I want him to bless them with the gospel. And so all, I think of all that, but that's something I'm asking God to do. And so what does it mean when it says, blessed be God? In other words, that God is blessed, or sometimes in the scripture, where we bless him. And so I just... I looked up the root word of this, okay? And uh, if you look in the New Testament, this word here, and you look up the root word, you know what it means? To speak well of. Simple, just breaking that down. It means to speak well of. Well, if you speak well of God, what's a simpler way that we say that? We praise Him, right? It means may, may God's praise be on our lips, coming out of our mouths. May all people be exalting and glorifying and praising the God of the universe, the God who has provided this great salvation for us. And so all, what we see here is God alone is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. And in just a moment, we're going to begin to walk through this passage a little bit more and figure out why it is we praise him. But I want to stop for just a moment, and I want to think about what we want to see happen as Christians. Okay, I'm thinking, you know, as a, when I've worked with missionary teams, we had a vision statement. What did we want to see take place? What do we want to see happen where we live? Churches do the same thing, right? And it's not just churches, really. It's the universal church. What do we want to see happen on this earth? Well, we want a multitude of people, believers from every people, nation, and tongue, rightly praising and worshiping God in healthy churches, right? Isn't that our vision for the world? Wouldn't we love that for our country and our nation? That there would be a multitude, a countless number of people, worshiping God, giving him the glory due his name, praising him in a healthy church, that they have healthy churches to go to. Well, the truth is, it didn't matter which mission team I was leading at the time, our vision statement always turned out to be kind of the same. And I think when you begin to look at the churches 
really, we might have a little bit different vision statements, but isn't what you want in Forest Heights, isn't what you want in this community in Athens, there to be a multitude of people praising God, giving Him the glory due to His name, saying, Blessed be God, and worshiping Him in a healthy church. And it may not be your church, but isn't that the vision that you want to see in Athens? I mean, we want that multitude of people. But then you begin to think about, well, well, if that's what we want, how do we get there? Okay? And there's never, you know, God doesn't always uh, establish our plans the way that we expect Him to. But we come and we do make plans and we begin to develop the mission of the church, right? What is it that we are going to do? And if it's all about God's worship, then that has to factor in to what we're doing. But shouldn't the church's mission and the goal be to be a healthy church? If we want a healthy, healthy church, then we have to start by becoming one. And I, maybe you are. I don't know. I'm just a guest today. But so I can say things because I don't know you guys personally. And so uh, if I step on toes, it's accidental completely. Uh, but what I want to say is we want to be a healthy church that is doing what? Praising and worshiping God. It starts with the word. It starts with prayer. It starts of us being in the scripture. But we also, if we're going to be a healthy church, that means we have to provide a place where the others, the young people, the others, the, the new Christians that come in, we have to provide a place where they can grow in both knowledge and obedience. Because it's about not just knowing who God is, but following him. In other words, to be a church that worship, we want to be a church that worships rightly disciples, new and young believers, so that they too will be able to walk with him. And as part of that mission of the church, is there not a command in Scripture that tells us to go and make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to do what? Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. And the great news about that, the Great Commission, is Jesus then says, and lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. That he's with us right now, and he promises to go be with us as we go about that mission. But all of that is centered on praise and the saying, blessed be God. May he be exalted. Uh, years ago, I was still in college, and, and I was thinking about going overseas. I was already planning on being a missionary. And I read a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in it, the author says that missions missionaries exist because worship does not. In other words, why do we send people across the world to share the gospel? It's because they're, they're supposed to be praising God, and they're not. In the absence of praise and worship, we need to make that happen. And so part of what we do as a church, right, the heart of any church, is that praise and worship, that God would be given all the glory and honor due his name. It starts here, right? Churches for believers. But it also expands in, into the work of the kingdom that is outside of these walls. Uh, so let's get back into the text. I've, I've been talking about that for a minute, but I just want you to see this morning. It's all about blessed be God. It's all about his honor and the glory due his name. So I ask you this as we read, go back to verse 3 again. Why is it that we praise him? Well, we, first we see that it says, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, first of all, we see right away what we're talking about. Not only is he the creator of the universe, 
He is specifically the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the God who loved us so much that he sent his Son to die for us. And so we're immediately reminded that what God has done for us in salvation. We, we see that we can praise him for providing for us that great hope in the gospel. Next, we see that it says in the text, it says, according to his mercy, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Uh, when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. As we uh, believed, he did a work in us. The scripture says he took out the heart of stone, that old obstinate, sinful heart, and he gave you a heart of flesh. It says we were a new creature. And all that we see that God did that great miracle such that we should rejoice when we think about the miracle he has worked in our lives. He has given us the free gift of salvation. So praise be to him. Blessed be our God. It says when you believed, he made you anew. We're a new creature. And we have all of that there for us. But here's what we get out of this new birth, okay? It says in the text, you look down at verse 4, he calls us to be born again. Sorry, the second half, verse 3. It says he calls us to be born again to something. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we get something out of this. We're not, he doesn't just save you. You say a prayer, he saves you, you get fire insurance, and he leaves you alone. Right? He's going to continue to work in you. And here it says he gives you a living hope. And here's what I think this means. I want you to think of the imagery of baptism. I was going to point back there, but you can't see it because there's a tarp. But if you could imagine someone, what do we, what do we say when we're baptizing somebody? When's the last time, we? I mean, if you've seen a baptism in recent days, you remember this, right? They go under the water. What do we say? They've been buried with him in baptism, right? There's, it's the imagery of you share in Christ's death. And then you come up out of this, raised to walk in what? Newness of life. And it's the image of one day you're going to be resurrected. Christ has already come out of that grave, and he's been uh, he's been, have, he has this glorified body. He's never going to die again. And the scripture tells us in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies to be like his glorious body. That we know from 1 Corinthians 15, which is talking about the resurrection, we're going to put off mortality for immortality. We're going to trade the perishable for that which will never fade and never pass away. And so we see here, as we are united with Christ, it's our union with him. We get all the benefits of his death, don't we? He died on that cross to take your place, and because we're united with him through faith, it counts for us. His death counts for your sin and mine, but we also then have this living hope, this promise that we will not just share in his death, but we will share in the resurrection. Now, hope is an expectation. You don't hope for something you already have, do you? How many of you have already been resurrected? Yeah, or maybe you know somebody that has, right? Listen, uh, a couple of my boys raised their hands, so we got to work on that. <laughs> Listen, we've been born again. You've already been made new. But it's not final. Now here's what, I don't mean that you're not saved. I don't mean that it's not secure, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
But what I mean is this. You still live in the sinful body that we've been given. We still live in a world that is difficult, but we have the promise coming because if Christ was raised, you will be raised. If death could not hold him down, death will not hold you down when he raises you up on, the, on, uh, on that day. And so we know that we have the hope, a living hope of the resurrection, that it is guaranteed, promised to come. You know the great thing about God? We've been, uh, I've been teaching on the characteristics of God is when he makes a promise, he never changes his mind. He never changes because he made the perfect promise to begin with. He doesn't have to change his plans. And so if he says, you will be resurrected with Christ, guess what? You will be resurrected. And so we can praise him for that. But he also says in verse 3, says we've been caused, uh, caused, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Verse 4 also, we've been born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. When you became a believer and he transferred you from death into life, you suddenly became part of a new family. Some, some of you may have inherited something from your family. But when you become part of God's family, guess what? You also get an inheritance. And he's giving the, telling them this to encourage them, to give them a hope for the future as they're going to go through trials. But listen to these words from John 14, John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Church, you know this. You have, you have put all of your hope in this for years and years, right? Because we all have this hope and promise that not only are we going to be resurrected, there's going to be a place for us, a dwelling place in God's house, a place where he's going to dwell with us, where we will live in his presence. And it says that our inheritance there is imperishable. If you are a homeowner and you don't do the maintenance on your house, what happens? It begins to perish, right? It deteriorates. One problem turns into a bigger problem and a bigger problem. Leave that house abandoned for four or five years and see how much money it costs to get that thing back in shape, right? And we see this happen. Well, the, the house that is laid up for us in heaven says it's imperishable. It's, it's in God's place. It will not fall into a state of disrepair. It is secure. It is there. Christ has prepared it. Uh, it says it will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. It will not be stolen. And it also says it's undefiled. You guys know what that means? It is not marred by sin. Maybe the best part about our inheritance that, coming, that is coming is that we will be free from sin. You know, Paul said the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You guys ever find that sometimes you do the very things you hate, and sometimes you just struggle with the fact that I'm still a sinner? And we live in a world full of sin, and we see its results. We see the, just the, all the things that happen uh, in our community. We see it, what's happening in the Ukraine right now, that's, that all these, these issues that are just sin working their way out in our bodies. Well, listen, we do get an inheritance in heaven. It is a dwelling place. But like I said earlier, we also put off this mortal flesh and put on immortality. We will live with him forever, and I can't wait for the day 
when this body isn't full of sin. I, I just, when I can walk in his presence and enjoy him forever and not have to live with that, that's such a great part of this inheritance. And so, God, guys, we praise God and we praise him for the good things that he's provided for us in salvation. Then it says that this salvation is through faith and ready to be revealed in the last time. It's all there. It's all being started, but it's still coming uh, here's what I mean by this. If you look at verse 5, it says, You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We know this, right? We have, we're still waiting. We have the hope of the resurrection. We also know we still live in the sinful world, that we ourselves still sin, that we will go through struggles, and it's about to switch into that when we get to the next verse. But listen, Salvation is secure. It says we have been protected. Um, it says we have been protected by the power of God through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed. On the last day when he culminates all these things, he's going to finally carry out salvation. You guys know, right, that the scripture does talk that way about salvation. That we were saved, we're being saved because he's still working us, and we will be finally fully and completely saved on that last day when this body is made right, when all these things are finished, all of his promises are completed. But it says there that we are protected by him in the meantime. So you're, they, they always tell us that there's only two things that are, that are really uh, sure in life, right? Death and what? Taxes. Yeah, well, the good news is, according to this, our salvation is secure and it is guaranteed. Why? Because we are protected by the very power of God. Listen to John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus tells his disciples there, listen, this salvation that has begun, you're going to go through some, through some things because you're still on this earth. You are still in this period where you have been saved, but you're waiting on him to finally finish this. Kind of like it says in another, in another text, it says, all things have been put in subjection to Christ, but we don't see it all yet. Christ is the king, but sometimes we don't see it that way just yet. We still go through trials. But listen, church, he, we praise him because he is worthy as the great I am. We praise him because he is who he is. We praise him because of his actions and what he's done for us that he did send Jesus, his promises that we will be resurrected. We are guaranteed an inheritance that will last forever. And until that day comes, church, every one of you is in the palm of his hands and you are protected by the power of God himself. Now, this is elementary for us, isn't it? I think we all know this message so well that sometimes we take it for granted. And so this morning, as we ground ourselves in this gospel, I want you to just consider it anew. Consider it again. Think deeply on these verses and what he's done. The message is simple, but it is also profound. We ground ourselves in the gospel to remind one another of its encouragement. Listen, there's a lot of things coming, hard days for churches. You guys have seen it. I meet with other pastors. I've seen what they go through and and there's plenty of churches that are shut down. 
And you know what they need? They, they don't need programs. They need to get back into the gospel and let it get deeply in their lives to preach it accurately, but also to believe it and let it be the motivation. And I say that because if you look down uh, in verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Do you hear what that says? Listen, right now, you, you rejoice in the salvation you have, the, the, the future salvation that is coming and guaranteed, but right now, because you still live here, because it hasn't all been finished yet, you will go through trials. You'll go through hard times. You'll go through times where you'll be tempted to fall into sin. We'll have, I mean, some of you will look around and go, you, you know people who have fallen away from Christianity because of the trials we've gone through the last few years. And I don't want to minimize that because, there, listen, some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have gone through great trials that I can't even begin to imagine. There's hard things that are out there. But what it says here is that this begins to remind us that God is the God of all comfort. That he knows you're in those trials. And he says it's necessary right now that we're going to go through this. Look at verse 7. So the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though testified by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I find that people that have gone through persecution or through deep trials, they have genuine faith. And they will tell you that they have proved God. They've tested Him. And as they've gone through these trials, God has kept them from being shaken. Church, we have such a great message of comfort here. And as Peter continues to write this letter, over and over he's going to address the suffering and the trials that they go through and push them back into the gospel and the hope that they have. Listen to, uh, later on he's going to tell them, listen, it's better to suffer for doing what is right rather than what's wrong. He'll tell them that their adversary is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He tells us to remain firm in our faith, to understand that these experiences of suffering are shared by brothers and sisters all around the world. Then Peter tells them in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That we go through trials, but we have to look at it from his perspective. That this world is on a course and it's running its course. And at the end, this all will be completed. But in the meantime, bear up under it. Be patient. Be comforted in knowing that he is with you. Verse 8 there says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's all of this culminates in our, in, in, in our comfort, but also our joy. And if you don't have joy this morning, I beg of you, read this text. Go back through and dwell on what he's done for you. Uh, I think it was John Chrysostom who said there's no no greater uh, consolation to man than the, than the exposition of Scripture. To go back, if you want comfort, look at God and who He is and what He's done for us, but it also fills us with love and joy. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip down to, to one more verse here. Because I want you to know the gospel is our motivation. I hope that this message is encouraging us 
to realize he's got it all in control. It's all in his hands. There is inheritance laid up for you. Salvation is secure. You have such a great hope. But that needs to drive what we do with our time on this earth. Here's what I mean. First Peter, look down in chapter 1, look down at verse 13. If you still have your Bible open. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Therefore, in other words, in light of this great salvation we just talked about, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Do you hear what he said? He says, um, we have to prepare our minds. It points us back to the great salvation we have. If we are saved, if we are new people, then we need to begin to live in light of that salvation. In other words, how do we prepare our minds for action? Not to just say, hey, we're just going to wait this out. We're just going to see what happens. We're going to sit by idle. He says, no, prepare your minds. And that's a weird phrase in the text. Uh, if you're, I, I didn't look up the King James in this one, but it, this is the same word for gird your loins. All right? The idea that, you know, they wore these robes, and, you know, it's kind of cumbersome and hard to run at, around in a robe, and so they would tie them up in their belt so their legs were free to move about. It's saying, listen, just like they would prepare their legs to be able to run and be able to do activity, you prepare your mind like that. You get it ready right now. Prepare your mind for action. Uh, church, uh, you may have been through quite a bit recently. You may have gone through some of those trials we talked about, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, poor health, betrayal, and so on. Maybe as a church you've even gone through trying times. But the advice laid out in this text is this. Fix all of your hope on one thing the salvation and the grace that will be carried out at Christ's return. That he is going to fill, fulfill all of his promises. And so in your roughest of days, your hardest days, what you have to do is fix your hope that Christ is going to bring you that grace he said he would. That he would pour out his favor and kindness on you. That he would help you change, transform your body so that it would go from mortality to immortality. He would do all of that in us. But it takes, in this text, we have to do that so that we be prepared for action. And church, if, if your church is going to continue to move forward, if, and I'm not talking about just Forest Heights, it's churches all over this nation. They have to, right now, look back at their hope and fix it on Christ and not on any worldly program, not any political party, none of the circumstances around us. We can't look at it from terms of, of economic recession or anything else. Our hope has to be fixed on one thing, the grace that's coming to us, the salvation that has been provided for us in Christ. And if we can get our mind right on that, it'll inspire us and motivate us to say, I want to be about the work of God's kingdom. The last thing it said in verse 13 is that we had to be sober-minded. Sober is the opposite of drunk, right? You know what usually gets kind of talked about in Scripture when we talk about drunkenness? The fact that you're wasting your time. If you're drunk, you're not doing anything. You're not accomplishing anything productive. But if you're sober-minded, you realize, hey, we live in this age. And we've got to make the most of our time as we do it. And so it's telling us, 
Stay in your right mind. Don't waste your life away. Understand these truths and then get about God's business. It really is that. A uh, long time ago, there's a popular sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. And I know so many missionaries that were called to serve overseas because they heard that and said, I was living for an American dream. I was living for the grandkids, living for my children, living for the house of the white picket fence. And sometimes we have to realize we live in a, in a strange, evil age where there's a lot of work that needs to be done, people waiting to hear the gospel, but it will not happen. Our children will not be raised up to know the truth of the scripture if people will not take the time to teach them. The loss will not come without someone going to take the gospel to them. All of this causes us to be sober-minded and prepare our minds and our hearts for action. So church, to wrap this up, individually and as a congregation, there's a lot of work that must be done. Remember the vision that we had at the beginning? We want to see a multitude of believers praising and worshiping God in this community. We want to see Forest Heights community overwhelmed with the number of believers that are out there. People begging, hey, can we learn the scriptures? Can you teach us? Can you help us? We want to know that the, listen, the field is ripe with harvest. We know it is, and we want God to send out workers to the field. And those workers at Forest Heights in this community, the workers are sitting right out there. You're the ones that he has called to do this work. But if we want to see that multitude of believers praising and worshiping God in this community, but to do that, you have to be a healthy church that worships God rightly, that does the hard work of making disciples, helping them grow in knowledge and obedience. But hard work is yet to be done. So rejoice. Take comfort in the certainty of your salvation and hope to come. In gratefulness, thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, prepare your mind and heart for action today. Put off sin. Make the most of your time on this earth. As we go into this time of invitation, maybe you've let the trials and the hardships the last few years get you down. Come today and tell God about it as we sing this last song. He knows all about your troubles. He knows what you're going through. He is the God of all comfort. Perhaps you've been happy. Maybe life is going well, but you've forgotten the work of the kingdom and the work he's called you to do. Confess it to him. Tell him he will restore you. Commit to giving him your best because he's worthy of your all.